Hello, I'm Aaron Lord. And I'm Caitlin Andrzejczyk. And this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Thank you for listening to this podcast, a free service of the Endocrine Society. September is Women's Health Month, and in this episode, we talk about progesterone and perimenopause with Jerry Lynn Pryor, a professor at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Pryor tells us about the differences between menopause and perimenopause and about a new treatment approach to perimenopause, oral micronized progesterone. She presented her findings at the Endocrine Society's annual meeting. Also, Caitlin has three treats for us here. First, a research update. Second, the hormone of the day. And third, a trivia question. Stay tuned. Today's interview with Dr. Pryor focuses on her recent work on the benefits of progesterone for perimenopausal symptoms. If you're interested in reading some of the latest research in women's health topics, check out our newest thematic collection of papers, released this month. Go to www.endocrine.org podcast to find this episode and click on the link to this thematic issue. In this curated collection, we include clinical articles on the role of growth hormone in breast cancer, the association between HIV-1 infection and hormonal contraception, and the impact that endocrine-disrupting chemicals may have on female reproductive disorders, including endometriosis and fibroids. Basic Science articles provide new insight into the impact of diet on reproductive disorders. They discuss ovulation and the factors that influence oocyte maturation, and investigate the effects of menopause on breast aromatase expression. There are several review articles in this collection as well. They examine the impact of anorexia nervosa on bone health, and describe the need for increased sex and gender perspective in research. Two of our society clinical practice guidelines are also included, focusing on the evaluation and treatment of hirsutism and amenorrhea. All the articles in this collection are free to download. Now for a feature we haven't seen in a while, our hormone of the day. In today's episode, we learn about work using progesterone as a treatment for perimenopausal symptoms. But before we get into today's interview, Here is a brief overview of progesterone. It is a progestogen steroid sex hormone involved in regulating the menstrual cycle, pregnancy, and embryogenesis of humans, as well as other species. It is secreted by the corpus luteum, a temporary endocrine gland in the ovary that is produced after ovulation to prepare the endometrium for potential pregnancy. If a female does not become pregnant, the corpus luteum breaks down, lowering the progesterone levels in the body, resulting in menstruation. If a female does conceive, Progesterone production is taken over by the placenta to maintain elevated levels, as this hormone continues to play many roles related to the development of the fetus. Although the corpus luteum is the major site of progesterone production in humans, progesterone is also produced in smaller quantities by the ovaries themselves and the adrenal glands. And as I mentioned before, the placenta also will produce this hormone during pregnancy. Finally, before the interview, our trivia question. Who first identified and isolated the sex hormone progesterone? I will have the answer for you after the interview. And now we talk with Jerry Lynn Pryor, a professor of endocrinology and metabolism at the University of British Columbia in Canada. She is the founder and scientific director of the Center for Menstrual Cycle and Ovulation Research, which is based in Vancouver. She is the author of the book Estrogen Storm Season, Stories of Perimenopause, 
and co-author of The Estrogen Errors, Why Progesterone is Better for Women's Health. Dr. Pryor presented recent research findings on progesterone and perimenopause at the Endocrine Society's annual meeting in Chicago, and we talked with her there. Can you tell us how many women are perimenopausal and how important is it to have safe and effective treatment for vasomotor symptoms like hot flushes and night sweats? First of all, today in North America, and it differs in different parts of the world, about 20 or 25% of women are perimenopausal. In addition, it's important because hot flushes and flashes are more common in perimenopause than in menopause, which is surprising to most people. We think of menopause, estrogen deficiency, which is not a correct concept either, and then in in association with that, hot flushes and night sweats. So in fact, when I trained, and I graduated from medicine in 1969, so that's a while ago, the idea that you could have hot flushes in a menstruating woman was just not even thought about. It was unheard of. And in fact, we didn't put into the official medical terminology the word perimenopause until 1995. Why do you think we need something different to treat perimenopause versus menopause? Because menopause and perimenopause are as different as chalk and cheese. (laughs) Pardon the British (laughs) saying, but, uh, and by the way, that only works if you have white cheese and white chalk, Um, (laughs) which is typical British. But at any rate, I'm Canadian and not British. But in menopause, as we all know, estrogen and progesterone are low, and that's normal for that life phase. But perimenopause is the rather chaotic, long transition into menopause, and it's characterized by higher-than-normal estrogen levels, And those levels are swinging, not the usual pulsatile 20%, but 100% or 2,000% from minute to minute, half hour to half hour. In addition, progesterone levels, despite the higher estrogen levels, are lower already in perimenopause. So that makes it quite different. And the third, and this is important for vasomotor symptoms, is that because of the cytokines and the social transition that perimenopause is, catecholamines and stress hormones are higher in perimenopause. Therefore, it's, it's a whole different milieu hormonally than menopause, even though hot flushes, flashes seem to be the same. So how are hot flushes and night sweats in perimenopausal women currently being treated, and how safe and effective are those treatments? It varies, obviously, in different parts of the world, but the most commonly recommended therapies are combined hormonal contraceptives, or Mm -hmm. the birth control pill, or menopausal-type hormone therapy. And what's interesting is, although most physicians believe those therapies are evidence-based, there are no randomized controlled trial that show benefit of those therapies greater than placebo Mm. in perimenopause. I mean, we all know estrogen works for menopausal hot flushes, and in fact, estrogen with progestin is significantly more effective than estrogen alone, but we assume that that kind of evidence is available in perimenopause, and it is not. 
So your study offers a new treatment approach, oral micronized progesterone. First of all, why did you pursue this approach? And can you tell us a little bit about your work? Well, it was a natural outgrowth of what I've done throughout my career. Basically, I came to the University of British Columbia in 1976 and realized that I needed to have a specialty within endocrinology in order to work in an academic environment. And at the time, it was the 70s, if you recall, the aerobics boom. And it was also the same time when women were finally being allowed to do longer distance runs. So the first official women's marathon was 1984, for example. But the immediate literature that started coming out was that exercise, marathon training caused women to lose their periods. And I said, wait a minute, that feels like prejudice to me. And sure enough, the studies were cross-sectional, or they were with you know, university students that were taken to a camp, away from home, away from support systems, and then they ran like hell, and no wonder they lost their periods, Mm. right? So I asked the question, what would happen if you enrolled a group of women, all of whom were proven normally ovulatory, normal weight, non-smoking, 20 to 40 years of age, so they'd been menstruating for a good while, and then followed them over time, but they differed in their exercise habits from sedentary. In Vancouver, we couldn't call anyone that. That was saying bad things about them, Uh-oh. so we called them normally active. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> those women who were running for fitness and health, and those were women who were training for a marathon. And when we followed those women over time, what we found out was that everyone maintained normal cycles, but that two-thirds of the group had at least one cycle in which they had a short luteal phase or didn't ovulate at all. So ovulation was the big change, which meant they didn't have sufficient progesterone for the amount of estrogen. And as it turned out, in order to get funding, I had to use bone as the primary outcome. And therefore, we discovered since they kept their periods and their estrogen levels were normal, that those women who didn't ovulate consistently were losing bone. Wow. So you need both progesterone and estrogen to preserve bone density in young, healthy women. So that was a new observation. So I've been working on progesterone and what progesterone does for 30 years now. By the way, that study was in the New England Journal, which I was very lucky to get it in there. But I've built on that since. And so there's now good evidence that progesterone is women's bone formation stimulating hormone. So now we have this oral micronized progesterone that Mm -hmm. uh, you've been looking at. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what you you and your team have been doing. Uh, We'd be really interested in hearing about even some of your results later on about efficacy and, and some of the safety. All right. So I realized that there were many women who were menopausal who either didn't want to take estrogen-based therapies for hot flushes or who couldn't, who had endometriosis, who had heavy flow. And the evidence said that progestins, synthetic progesterone-like drugs, were effective for hot flushes. So I did the first ever randomized controlled trial of progesterone for menopausal hot flushes, and it was quite successful. 
So those data are published in 2012 in Menopause, the journal Menopause. So it was a natural thing then to say, would progesterone, which is already low in perimenopause, be effective for hot flashes in perimenopausal women? So that the first is we already knew that progesterone was effective for hot flashes in menopause. Secondly, we knew that estrogen was high and progesterone was already low in perimenopause. But the third reason is that progesterone has one very dominant side effect, if you will, which is that it improves sleep. Sleep is one of the very most difficult problems that perimenopausal women have. So it seemed a logical agent to try in perimenopause. So what we did was we did a pilot study first because we expected that the hot flushes would be different in perimenopause than in menopause and increased our sample size by 20% over what we had used in the menopause trial. And we also, um, on the strength of that, we got randomized control trial funding from the Canadian Institutes for Health Research. But we also built into the study the opportunity to look again at the variability once we'd recruited about half of our planned cohort. And when we did that, we discovered that we needed many more women than we'd planned for. So we had to try to increase our cohort. And as anyone who's ever done a randomized control trial knows, recruitment is the biggest, most difficult thing to do. It was interesting because we could not recruit that many in the local metropolitan Vancouver area. It has three million women, but perimenopausal women are awfully busy. They've Mm. got their families, they've got their job, they often have elder parents. And so imposing on them was just not something they were prepared to do. They'd put up with the hot flushes or take some herbal preparation instead. So we ended up making this trial a remote participant trial and recruited from across Canada. Since the outcome was something they could record themselves on a daily diary type form, and we could communicate with almost all of them by email, and almost all had access to faxes and some to Skype and We did the initial questionnaires by telephone or Skype. And then we sent the medication by courier, so they had to sign for it. So we had appropriate control of experimental medication. Mm -hmm. So it worked very well. In fact, we recruited from five of the seven provinces and two of the three territories. Nice. Yeah, Nunavut to Vancouver. Uh, Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the results that you got from this increased cohort? Did their sleep improve? Did the hot flashes improve? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? I certainly can. Okay, so the good news is that we included a question that's kind of a quality of life question and ask each woman at, at their final visit at the third month of this experimental therapy what change they noticed in their daytime hot flushes and their night sweats in their sleep. And what they noticed was a significant decrease in night sweats 
number, intensity, and overall night sweats, and a significant decrease in the sweatiness or intensity of their hot flushes in the daytime, and a significant improvement in sleep. And as far as safety goes, were there any side effects that we need to be concerned about? There were no serious side effects. It was tolerated extremely well. We had one woman who, by mistake, took it during the daytime and felt very woozy and had to go home from work, but that was her problem. We (laughs) clearly said, take it on your way to bed. Mm -hmm. And by the way, there are many clinicians who say, oh, my, my patients don't tolerate oral micronized progesterone very well. And I think the primary reason is that they first take it when they're sleep deprived. And then they try to wake up at 6.45 like usual and get bustling off to work. And their body wants to to stay in REM sleep. They want to catch up on their missing sleep. So the way we instructed women in this study was to take the 300 milligrams at bedtime, but the first time to take it when they could sleep in, so a Friday night. So they could sleep in Saturday as long as they needed to. And if you do that, then it's extremely well tolerated. But you don't take it the first time and get ready to go to bed, and then someone says, look at what's happening on the news, and you'll feel rather drunk and rather strange Hmm. if you do that. So what's next for you and your team and this new approach? Well, I'm delighted to be on this program because I think it's important that physicians understand this is an option. And I think that if they do, many of their patients would jump at the chance because many are quite frankly scared of side effects and adverse events from mm-hmm. estrogen. The, the good news is that progesterone appears to prevent rather than increase the risk of breast cancer from observational data. We don't have randomized controlled trial data, but that's its physiologic role in the body is to estrogen's a powerful growth factor, and progesterone's job is to cause the cells to become more mature, which is an anti-cancer mm-hmm. action. So this trial or this kind of trial needs to re- be repeated again because we do need larger numbers than we actually had. We had almost 200, but the primary outcome didn't quite reach statistical significance. So it needs to be done again. Whether it will be, I don't know. How can women reach out and learn more about this program and clinical trials that you might be performing in the future? One of the things that I do in Vancouver is run the Center for Menstrual Cycle and Ovulation Research We have a very rich website with hundreds of pages of things that are primarily for lay women, but almost always the references and the physiology are explained clearly in a way that most physicians would find helpful as well. So it's www.cemcor.ca. And are there any other resources that might be helpful to people who are interested in this? Uh, Yes, I did a strange thing some years ago. Uh, I had done a major review of the endocrinology of perimenopause published in Endocrine Reviews, and five, ten years later, nothing had changed. Everybody was still talking about perimenopause as dropping estrogen, etc. 
So I decided I needed to go directly to women and that women wanted to hear that other women were having similar experiences. So I wrote a book that's actually fiction. I made up eight different women who had different problems in perimenopause and a doctor that they came to see. It's called Estrogen Storm Season, Stories of Perimenopause, and it's now available as an ebook in the two major formats. So if you go to the face page of www.cemcor.ca, you'll find it at the bottom of the face page. That is amazing. Thank you so much for spending some time with us and, and sharing your research. It's been a pleasure. You're very welcome. Thank you. Our trivia question was, who first identified and isolated the sex hormone progesterone? The answer? In 1929 and 1930, Dr. Willard Myron Allen, along with his professor, Dr. George Washington Corner, discovered progesterone while working in their embryology laboratory and first maintained pregnancy in rabbits with corpus luteum extracts. Dr. Allen wrote an article titled, My Life with Progesterone, and in it he described the day that progesterone was successfully isolated. It's a really nice quote, so I will read it here. The isolation of the hormone from the waxy material obtained by high vacuum distillation was a laborious and exasperating experience. However, the month of May 1933 was a glorious month. On May 5th, I had the crystalline corpus luteum hormone. On May 18th, my daughter Lucille was born. My friends gave me double congratulations, and I was sitting on top of the world. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening to the Endocrine News Podcast. To learn more, visit www.endocrine.org podcast. There, you can find this episode and some helpful links. We have some great episodes coming up soon, but we also want to know what matters to you. What would you like to hear about on the podcast? Write to us at podcast at endocrine.org. There's still time for you to send us your thoughts about preconception health and counseling, specifically what men who are interested in becoming fathers can do before conception for their own health and for the health of their future children. Email us at podcast at endocrine.org to let us know your thoughts. We will read highlights in a future episode. You can subscribe to Endocrine News Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. While you are there, do us a favor and leave a review of our podcast on iTunes. Good reviews help build interest and make the podcast easier to find when new listeners search. Thanks again for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.